What's up, everybody? Welcome to Good Dudes Grow. My next guest is a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and venture capitalist. He has a track record of success in investing and operating in industries such as blockchain technology, cosmetics, and psychedelics. You won't want to miss this one. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Good Dudes Grow 2.0. On the Good Dudes Grow 2.0, we're here to let you know the importance of plant-based medicine and psychedelics on mental and physical health. We're bringing you stories of how these medicines have changed lives and can save lives. We want to teach you the healing power of plant-based medicine. This is the Good Dudes Grow 2.0. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Good Dudes Grow 2.0. It's my pleasure to have a true visionary on the show today, Mr. Jeremy Gardner. He's a serial entrepreneur, an angel investor, venture capitalist, has a track record of successful operating in, and investing in frontier industries such as blockchain technology, cosmetics, and psychedelics. He's also well known as the, one of the early entrepreneurs and evangelists in the crypto space. So not only I'm excited to dive into his brain about psychedelics and investing, but also a little bit about the crypto market. So Jeremy, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Hey, tell us a little bit about your background, just a little bit how you got started in, you know, being an entrepreneur. Well, I guess, you know, I was always an entrepreneur, uh, but I grew up in a small town in Western Massachusetts where there's no such thing as an entrepreneur. So whether it was like buying video games in bulk off of uh, eBay and then reselling them on Amazon or selling pot from the ages of like 13 to 21. Uh, it was never looked uh, fondly upon. Obviously, drug dealing is probably not not the best thing for a young person to undertake. But it, <laughs> if someone had identified uh, what I was doing as entrepreneurship, my energy could have been redirected. So I think the entrepreneurship started at a very young age, uh, which is funny because I've got very like Marxist, uh, almost anti-capitalist parents and stuff. Uh, but I just, I, I just enjoyed making money. I, I, I didn't even really care about the money component. I mean, back then it was a means to an end, but it always just came very naturally to me. Um, I always knew I wanted to make a big difference in the world. And so when I was in school, um, I tried activism. I was at, at Occupy Wall Street for a long period and got very disillusioned by that and then went on to work for the governor of Massachusetts and then helped run the first campaign of the woman, Barra Healy, who just got elected uh, a governor uh, last year. And I became further disillusioned because neither activism nor politics seemed like a good way to spend my 20s. Um, I transferred to the University of Michigan and was fortunate enough to move in with a Bitcoin fanatic who just implored me to learn about the technology. And I had always been into tech. And so I ended up reading the Bitcoin white paper, diving deep down the rabbit hole and took me a long time to come out of it. Uh, but I, <laughs> I ended up building what is now the largest and oldest nonprofit in the crypto space, the Blockchain Education Network. Uh, while I was in college and through that nonprofit, I met a brilliant 18-year-old computer scientist and we dropped out of the school together and started what would become the first application on the Ethereum blockchain and the first DeFi app, if you will. So uh, it's been a wild ride since, but that's how I got my start. <laughs> 
That's that's pretty incredible. That was one of my questions. Like how, you know, everybody heard of Bitcoin, but nobody really heard about how to get involved with it. So you pretty much got involved with it from a buddy in college. Well, so that's that was my very first venture was helping people get involved. So sure, my buddy wouldn't stop talking my ear off about it. Then I was like, what do I do? And I discovered there was a University of Michigan Bitcoin Club. And at the first Michigan Bitcoin Club meetup, I found out that there were Bitcoin clubs at MIT and Stanford. And so that night I got on a call with all the heads of the clubs, said, why don't we create an organization to give other young people resources around the world? And within three months, we had 100 chapters in 20 plus countries on every half of the world continent. It was just really incredible organic growth. And so that was the purpose because back then there weren't a lot of resources. There weren't a lot of texts like, you know, we were sharing presentations, research reports we were writing. It was all very kind of hobnob. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. So you're, you're, you're basically on the cusp of, 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 you know, crypto market. What made you get involved in the psychedelic market? That's, you know, two different spectrums completely. Well, they're all trying to bring new things into the world and, and change humanity for the better. So not too dissimilar when you zoom out far enough. Uh, but long before I had any sort of professional or entrepreneurial success, um, I, I really struggled as a kid. Like from 12 to 14, I just had incredibly bad anger, depression. I started getting arrested, kicked out of schools. And uh, when I was 14, I ate 3.5 grams of mushrooms and it just shattered my reality and totally changed my outlook on the world. I went from having regular, if not weekly, suicidal ideation to never experiencing that again. And a year later, when I, I took the same dose of mushrooms, uh, I got off the five psychiatric drugs I was on and haven't had a depressive episode in 16 years. And so from a very young age, long before this current psychedelic renaissance, I was acutely aware of the medicinal and therapeutic properties of psychedelics. And, and you know, since those that early experimentation, if you will, um, I've gone on to sit with virtually every known psychedelic and uh, understand their profound potential. And so when my friends went and started MindMed, which became one of the monster, you know, IPOs and multi-billion dollar companies in this space almost overnight um, and showed to me that it could be psychedelics could be a business despite their regulatory status. Um, I became quickly enthralled. I'd been reading all the new literature that's come out in the past 10 years or so. And so I, I sensed there was an opportunity and as more and more startups came, you know, by May 2020, I knew I had to start a fund. Um, or was it 20, wait, 2020? It's 2023. So mid 2021, I knew I had to start a fund. So I bought out all the investors in my uh, last venture fund. It was at the top of the crypto markets and it was a crypto fund. So it was great timing. And uh, I, you know, in three weeks, I had a fund spun up and I had money raised and uh, actively deploying. And, you know, I think that was in part due to the fact that everyone knew I was kind of a psychedelic guy, like my whole life, I've been like preaching the gospel. And now, now there's market validation and scientific val validation for everything I've been talking about for, you know, 16 years. 
And, you know, thus the investors kind of just came in and it's been just an amazing run in the first, you know, year and a half or so. That's, inc that's incredible. I I've got two questions that are kind of like completely different. First of all, as being an entrepreneur and being an investor, you don't hear of people, a lot of people saying, okay, I'm using, I use psychedelics. I did this because everybody, the stigma is, well, he's completely lost his mind. So he can't have good decision-making, can't, can't figure stuff out, but you, it, it's actually helped you propel your entrepreneurship and your investments, correct? Oh, absolutely. I'd say the vast majority, uh, what is most responsible for my entrepreneurial investing success and happiness in my life is psychedelics. Uh, and I think for me, you know, I never, I never faced that stigma because I pretty much went from being this just massive fuck up for the first 21 years of my life to being an overnight success. So I really had no chance to kind of change how I presented myself to the world. I just kind of, you know, stayed myself. Like I, I like I, you know, and that, you know, to try to hide the fact that I indulge in psychedelics is so disingenuous to who I am and how I've gotten to where I am. Um, and I, you know, I've just, I've been able to help people and I've seen so many be helped by these medicines that now that I am in this position of powder, power, it feels, you know, important, um, uh, you know, or even righteous that I be a responsible advocate for these medicines because you're right, a lot of people won't. Now, if you've seen what's happened in the past three, four years, I mean, there's been a tidal wave of shift in public sentiment. There's a lot less misunderstanding of what these medicines do. And there's been a lot more openness, you know, in pop culture, publicly. I mean, you see, you know, former politicians advocating for this medicine who may not explicitly be saying that they've used these medicines, but it's like, it's, it, 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 I mean, it's happened so much quicker than what happened with cannabis in, in that industry. I mean, there, you don't really see much public pushback. And so I think that's changing. I mean, you, you, you know, I mean, Prince Harry, you know, I mean, yeah, whoever he is, you know, <laughs> just talked about how, you know, it's like, and, but that was a headline, you know, you know, these people that are supposed to be so posh and perfect and flawless, the royal family, you know, talking about, you know, how psychedelics help heal his trauma. And, and, you know, Hunter Biden did that and, you know, whatever people think about him, but like that is happening more and more. And I think, you know, five years from now, nobody will bat an eye when someone says they took psychedelics. I mean, Steve Jobs was doing it 20 years ago, 25 years ago. So it's not, you know, even Bill Gates has admitted to it, but that's right. Peer pressured by jobs. <laughs> but, 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 you know, like, look, we know it sparks creativity. We know it helps with depression, anxiety, trauma, so on and so forth. So, and, and, and the science, unlike with something like cannabis, which there is still that stigma, because it, for the most part, it's not the best medicine. And for a lot of people, it doesn't really help them. Um, psychedelics are it, it, much things, things are much more heavily slanted in their favor in terms of, you know, societal openness because they're incredibly powerful tools. Right. Exactly. And then that's what we're trying to do as, as a firefighter, I started getting involved in the cannabis psychedelic industry to kind of try and help other firefighters deal with uh, the PTSD, have different options 
and all that. So that's where we started our, our mission in creating our, our center out in Costa Rica to create more uh, data showing that this is a proven method of treatment instead of waiting for the old end of life. You know, let's wait till you're all effed up and you, you know, you have PTSD and you want to commit suicide. Then we're going to give you access to everything, you know, because that's how we want to do it. I'm trying to create something where we can actually have a, a better understanding so it could be a preventative medicine. It could be something where, you know, firefighters, first responders still on duty can actually fly out, you know, go to Costa Rica, get some sort of session, come back, microdose, and not lose their careers, their jobs, their, you know, their, 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 their pensions just because they want to get their head straight, you know, from seeing all the crap that we see on a daily basis. So that, that's how we got involved. And that's why I like bringing people on with you because I like teaching people like, you know, there are a lot of people out there using this medication, not just, you know, because they want to use it and it keeps them normal. It, you know, it's not something that's going to, and it's better than the medications they were on. You know, half the stuff you were probably on before, like you said, had all suicidal tendencies. Or you, know? you just feel like a zombie because it, it's treating whatever your condition is. But as a result, you're not the person you'd like to be. And these medicines can help, you know, avoid that in theory. Right. So on, on, on investment standpoints for, for individuals who are looking for investments and ideas in, in portfolios or guy founders like us who are looking to get to investors, how do you identify best, you know, your best way, best investments? Do you, do you have a strategy for that or? Well, so I invested in the like pre-seed seed stage. You know, I like to be the first institutional money in on a deal. Um, and thus, you know, what you're really investing in is in founders. Now, back in my crypto days, or just as an angel investor, I've frequently invested in like 18, 16, 20-year-old kids. That's not the case in this space. I mean, I'm sure there's room for founders like that, but this is the most pedigreed emerging industry I've ever seen. The number of MDs, PhDs with clinical research backgrounds, incredible medical advisory boards, the bar is set very high. Now, that's not to say there aren't businesses you can start without degrees. I, I, there, there are many, but the, the quality of the founding teams that I see in this space is unlike any emerging industry I've ever seen. And thus, uh, you know, you got to find what your niche is. Like if you don't have a biotech or doctorate level background in creating, developing new drugs, you shouldn't be developing new drugs. Like full stop. Is, I mean... You can do the underground approach, but like, frankly, uh, or you should at least have a co-founder that has that background. Um, so, you know, if you're doing anything with a, a, a scheduled substance, which is what every psychedelic is or will eventually be, given our standards, um, you, need, you need a team that has the prerequisite experience, uh, hands down. Now, there are other businesses like, their, their, their software as a service plays, con consumer package, good plates with like functional mushrooms. There's all sorts of products you can create without that sort of pedigree. Um, but you got, you got to figure out like, what is it, what can you sell? What can, what's a founding story that, you know, investors can relate to because, you know, that is the standard that, you know, as an institutional investor, I have to hold you to. Now, a really brilliant kid that's doing something really interesting with like artificial intelligence and drug discovery, in theory, that could potentially work. But, you know, for the most part, I think on the drug development side of things, you really got to have, um, 
the right level of experience. But there are a lot of other opportunities here, just from a cultural standpoint. Uh, how do you see the industry evolving? Like, what do you, where do you see it going in 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 terms of itself and in investment styles? Because I know there's a lot, like you said, there's drug manufacturers trying to make drug manufacturers. There's you know, nutraceuticals. There's people like us who are creating, you know, industry for for treatment centers. You know, where do you see it kind of going? Well, I'd like to think, but I made this mistake once before with crypto, where I thought. I hoped and I tried to prevent it from becoming Wall Street 2.0, which it hasn't completely, but it definitely began to resemble it around the time I started to step away. Um, my greatest concern of what I don't want uh, psychedelics to evolve into is Big Pharma 2.0. I mean, that, but it's perfectly feasible. I mean, it's perfectly possible that happens. If there's regulatory capture by some big players or pharmaceutical companies that kind of bend the will of regulators and, and push this business in the direction of something that ends up resembling the band-aid, take a pill every day model uh, that, you know, big pharma has now, that would be really disappointing. I don't think that will happen. I think, you know, there's there's too great of an appreciation for mystical experiences and the impact that they have on the human psyche for those not to be allowed. I mean, MDMAs, I mean, MAPS, MDMA trials, you know, are completed, likely to get a, uh, uh, approved and get the substance rescheduled. And those are multi-hour therapy sessions. And so the model is being changed. And look, there's no pill that can solve trauma. MDMA uh, talk therapy can. So, you know, the, you know, I think you know, given the landscape and, you know, maps being a great example, the model is going to change in how we treat, you know, a lot of mental illnesses or just like unhappiness. But the, 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 the bigger issue, I believe, beyond just like rescheduling these substances, which we have to do for everything besides ketamine, is that we have to really rethink what it what it means to take medicine. So for almost all of human history, everyone took medicine. You took medicine not because you were sick, but because you wanted to feel better. It's only in the past couple hundred years that we've come up with this conception of medicine being something that we use to treat sickness. And therefore, when it comes to like the FDA approving new drugs, the only drugs that can get approved by the FDA are those that have an indication which means that you have to be sick to take them. That's really problematic. This is why you have this massive, unregulated um, pharmaceutical or supplement industry, because those these supplements aren't meant to necessarily treat sickness, but to just make you feel better. But the, therefore, you don't have any standards. My friend, uh, Ryan Breslow, he actually started a company called Love.com, and uh, that's they're trying to create standards for supplements. And uh, you know uh, more traditional medicines, and that's really important because we shouldn't limit you know MDMA or psilocybin or LSD or ayahuasca or any of these medicines to just sick people that are unwell. Like the world will be a better place if people that just want to feel better have access to responsible uh, use and. 
that's my hope. And, and that's my that's a big question mark for me, whether this is going to be a massively successful industry or not. It's unambiguous. I know it will be. But whether we can move beyond just medical treatment and get this to the point where I wouldn't call it recreational, but, you know, you know, you know, life enhancing treatment becomes possible would do so much for humanity. And, and so that's something I think a lot about. That, that, would, that was actually my next question on the recreational aspect. One of the biggest things I find is that, like you said, many of these medications, you know, they, they give you the journey, the mystical journey. And, and a lot of people with all the, 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 the whoopla and the trendy posts out there think that this is going to cure their mental health issue. It will, but there's a lot more to it than just taking the medication and expecting it to change, change you. So well, criminal addiction, is it something that we want to, you know, let everybody just try in case I have suicidal tendencies, I go and take this and all of a sudden, you know, I want bigger suicidal tendencies. You know, there's, there's more so to it. Is it not? Well, well, first off, I'll say the whole world, save for those with um, medical restrictions to ayahuasca, the world would be a million times better place. Like, yeah, you'd have some outliers. But like, oh, my God, like just humanity would just we would elevate to like a whole new dimension. Um, but given that, that that's not going to happen. And I also you're going to get a lot of crypto analogies here. Um, just like blockchain technology is in a silver bullet. Like back in the day, everybody would just like blockchain for this. It's just a database. Um, just the same as with medicine. Medicine is not a silver bullet bullet, you know, it often will help treat the underlying condition, but there's probably a reason why the underlying condition exists, whether it's stress, whether it's, whether it's trauma, um, that, and that's where psychedelics come in, is helping you address those underlying conditions. What causes your depression? What causes your anxiety? Now, th there are, are some use cases like strokes they're using dmt for strokes and it's actually helping heal the brain that's an example of where it is actually pretty close to a silver bullet but people still need to do mind training and help recover their function it, it, that's the thing there, there is no silver bullet in life you know you know these are tools and that's what they're best understood as and frankly i don't trust um your average american there's some societies where i think it would be fine like the Netherlands, where you can get truffles. Um, but but I don't trust Americans who love drunk driving and shooting guns to have free access to LSE or psilocybin or anything for that matter. There's a way to do controlled doses of microdoses, sure. I think, you know, over-the-counter microdoses could be awesome. Um, but it's not like, it's not like uh, you know, cannabis. Like, you know, you already hear these horror stories of little kids or people unintentionally eating edibles. Like, mushroom chocolates today scare the shit out of me because I'm worried that the wrong person is going to get their hands on them. I don't think there's a place for people to freely just buy psychedelics in this society. I, I just don't trust. Uh, <laughs> I, agree, I agree with you. But there should be safe spaces, whether those are, you know, psychiatrists or therapists' office whether they're licensed retreat centers, whether, you know, they're, they're, they're programs where people are, are, are screened 
there are ways to do this responsibly for individuals that want aren't sick but want to be healed or feel better. And so the, the, there's a middle ground that doesn't exist in modern medicine or in our regulatory frameworks. I mean, there's uh, compassionate use, but that really doesn't even begin to touch the problem because that's more about sick people. Right. Um, but there, there, there need to be new regulatory frameworks here. But no, I, I, I don't believe that there's any good will come from just making these substances freely available. But, but like, I'd, I'd like for people to get, like, just like the same way someone can easily get prescribed Viagra, like, I'd like for someone to easily get prescribed microdoses. Right. A certain amount a month and, you know, and it's like a very low, mild prescription. I agree with you 100%, exactly what you just said on all that. I, I believe also that one good way of actually controlling is I think wellness centers that do the whole mind-body aspect of it, that the whole wellness thing, I think they're going to be a big player in, in providing the, these type of medications. Because the last thing you want to do, especially as a, as a firefighter, is be stuck in a, in, you know, in a psychiatrist's office where I think they're going to straightjacket you or in a hospital where they no, give you this. No, no, no. If, I, if I go to a place where... Yeah, no, like, we've even invested in this company called Head, Heading Health. They're uh, um, based in the Southwest, and they're building psychedelic kind of friendly therapist office. So, like, where you can, like, it's all about set and setting. But in right. Oregon, where they have the legal psilocybin, what they're doing is people can't take microdoses home. But what they're doing is they're having people come into the treatment centers take a microdose, sit around for an hour, make sure there's nothing bad, and then they let them leave, I believe. That's, that's cool. That's cool. It's a starting point. It, yeah, it is. It's a starting point. It's kind of like the same thing. The, the, you know, as the great quote says, uh, you know, the states are the, you know, testing bed of democracy. And I, I think, you know, what the experiments we have going on in Colorado and in Oregon and elsewhere will provide a good test bed. But we, in terms of the, rescheduling and legalization or medicalization efforts. Um, uh, we can't take the, uh, the cannabis state-by-state state approach. We need federal change. Right. And that, that's, you know what, that's exactly what we thought. That's why the, the, the set and setting works. The, the federal approach is what we're looking at. That's what we're, we decided to go to Costa Rica and build that set and setting there and have the, uh, the platform technology to actually build federal data that we can actually bring back to the United States and help create those, those type of, of centers that we're talking about. What drives you as an investor? What, what's, what makes you passionate about investing in something or being an angel investor? You know, a lot of people say, you know, I just want to make a lot of money or what is that? I know you touched on it a little bit before making money is one of them, but what, what really drives you to invest? No, no, no. no. So I needed weed to smoke when I was a teenager. I didn't get an allowance. So I mean money, but it was a means to an end. Um, but then, like I said, like tw- like within a couple of years of my entrepreneurial career, I was pretty much a multimillionaire. I mean, I, and thus I, I can say with complete conviction, I've really never done anything in my life for the sake of money. I am, it's not an interesting goal for me. I do things that make money, and I'm very good at making money, but I would never, I've, I've trust me, I, I could be a lot wealthier if I, had ever j- just tried. Um, um, I, I, I've turned down a lot of opportunities in my life because the only thing that was interesting about it was the money I could make. And so 
Uh, no, the money, the, the money it isn't why I do it at all. I mean, to put it in the most, you know, pragmatic terms, I just love investing in dope shit. Like I love, I, I, I love, love that. I, I, I love finding companies that are doing something so cool in that most importantly, beyond just being dope, although I do just some, do some just dope investment. Uh, uh, I, I, I try to invest in companies. I believe that this company is massively successful. They're going to positively impact the world in a big way. And so that's the kind of my main metric, like, like even in the psychedelic space, because we see so much deal flow that, you know, it ends up being one of these metrics. Like, do I find this awesome? Like there, there, there are some startups in this space that are doing really incredible, like work treating some illnesses that like I really want to get treated. At the same time, I have no personal relationship to those illnesses. I know it's a big market opportunity, but I know really nothing about it. And therefore it just becomes a pass for me because I can only write so many checks. And I really want to invest in companies that I, where I can articulate what they do well and provide tremendous value to the companies. If, if the most value I'm providing is the money, I'm doing something wrong. And I tip the way I think what I tell them about founders when I first meet them is if money I give you um, isn't the least valuable thing I provide, I'll have done done my job. wrong. I, I really try to be engaged with these startups and provide immeasurable valuable just through my resources or my personal experiences that they gave with psychedelics or through my network. And, and so, you know, I really, and, and the reason why I do this, I mean, it's self-serving. It makes my job way more enjoyable. Like even if I make less money, I'm having way more fun doing what I'm doing and I'm not worried about the money making part. And so it, it, it kind of works out in my favor because I never get burnt out. That's incredible. You know, from, on a personal note that I applaud you, if coming from, from a father who lost his daughter to, a, to an opiate overdose and then lost his dad to an opiate overdose, I understand 100% you know, the passion and mission that you have with these medications trying to help everybody else. So I applaud you and I, I thank you for investing in the industry that we both see massive potential in helping people in the future. So Jeremy, I, I'd like to thank you for coming, taking the time out of your day and coming on my show. My was pleasure. Um, I, I really enjoyed it, man. Uh, you know, you talk about the opiate epidemic and you know i've had uh i've had almost a dozen friends stuff from opiates and so this is existential and you know just getting the word out like you're doing is really important work so thank you thank you sir i appreciate it and we'll you know let's definitely stay in touch yes sir you have a good day boss you too if you're still listening to this, that means you gained some type of value. So what we need you to do is leave a review and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode of The Good Dude Grow.